Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, last week, we started uh, a new series of sermons on Mark's gospel. Uh, last week, we looked at the very beginning of Mark's story, uh, how he uh, framed up this whole story that he's about to tell us, how he said that this story is actually uh, part of a much larger story that's been going on for a very long time. Uh, and then we, we met John the Baptist, who promised that a one mightier than him is coming. And so this morning, that mightier one makes his entrance into our story. So I'm going to read from Mark 1 for us. Uh, I'm going to read verses 9 through 11. We have more than that printed in the order of worship, but we're just going to read and talk about Mark 1 verses 9 through 11. You can follow along there or in a Bible, uh, or you can just listen as I read. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This is God's word and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, it is very true the thing that we just sang together, that we are turning unfilled to you again. And it's true whether we sense that that is true in ourselves, as I'm sure some of us do this morning. But it's also true uh, if we don't necessarily know that we are hungry and thirsty for you, as I'm sure others of us feel this morning. So we ask, Father, that you would, wherever we find ourselves, that you would fill us with good things and that other thing that we sang, that we would find that to be true, that those who find you find you good and all that we need. Father, show us the grace of Jesus and change us by it. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Well, you know, uh, I have kids, and so that means, um, among many, many other things, that I have seen probably more than my fair share of kids' movies uh, over the last decade and a half or so. And um, I want to tell you, I don't say that regretfully. Truth is, I don't mind kids' movies most of the time. I mean, there are definitely some awful, mind-killing kids' movies that are out there, um, but, you know, a good movie that's made for kids is a thing of beauty. The best of them tell stories with all of the kind of needless, cluttering adornments that clog up a lot of adult movies, a lot of grown-up movies. Um, they tell stories with those things stripped away. And far, far and away, um, my favorite kids' movie uh, that's been made in the last five years is a movie called The Box Trolls. Uh, I hope that at least some of you have seen The Box Trolls. Uh, I don't even really know where to start with this movie. It is so good. Um, it is a fantasy movie, so it's not set in a time or in a place that we really should have access to or would normally have access to. It's vaguely set in Victorian England. It takes place in a mountaintop town called Cheese Bridge. Um, and it is stop-motion animation, which is usually a really big plus. And in particular, in this film, the stop-motion animation adds a kind of detail and a kind of otherworldliness that is really, really compelling. So I'm not going to describe the plot to you. Um, you know, like most of the great stories floating around in our world, it's good versus evil and good wins. Um, and you can watch it if you want to find out how it gets there. But I do want to mention two characters who are in this movie. Their names are Mr. Trout and Mr. Pickles. 
Um, Mr. Trout and Mr. Pickles are the bumbling henchmen of the bad guy in the film. They're the ones that do all of his dirty work. And the thing is, at the beginning of the film, they have no idea that they are the bad guys. As a matter of fact, they, they think that they are the good guys. And slowly, over the course of the film, um, they begin to be haunted. They begin to be haunted by the sense that maybe they don't know the whole story. And that maybe there's more going on in their world than what they can see in front of them. Very slowly, they come to realize that they have been wrong about their reality all, all along. It dawns on them that they are, in fact, bad guys. And it's at that moment, of course, where they switch sides and they start fighting for good. And I'm not kidding when I say that this stuff with Mr. Trout and Mr. Pickles is really deep. <laughs> and it is very clear that the filmmakers are trying to aim at some really lofty stuff in the way that they tell their story. And then, finally, during the end credits, the curtain is pulled back. Trout and Pickles appear on the screen by themselves. And Pickles asks Mr. Trout, do you ever think about the universe? What if our world is just a tiny speck? And there are giants looking down on us, and every time we move, it's actually them moving us. And while they're saying this, the camera pans back to reveal a superimposed time-lapse shot of the animators painstakingly, excruciatingly moving and controlling Trout and Pickles while they're having this conversation. It's an amazing moment where the reality behind their reality is revealed, and then the screen goes dark, and Mr. Trout says, I think it throws up notions of free will. <laughs> and I think that is a perfect picture, a perfect picture, of what Mark does in the part of the story that we just read together. Not the stuff about free will, the stuff about the reality behind the reality that we can see. The stuff about the curtain being pulled back and the reality of what is really going on in our world being revealed. That's what Mark's doing. I don't know if you noticed this, but as Mark tells the story, it is Jesus who sees the heavens torn open. It is Jesus who hears the voice that comes from heaven. It is Jesus who sees the dove descending on him, the spirit descending on him. But Mark lets us in on things that no one else other than Jesus can see and hear. He lets us in on the reality behind the reality. And Mark does this because it serves one of those things that is at the heart of his story. It serves this question that he is obsessed with over the identity of Jesus. Now we know at this point, and now once we've heard this story, we know who Mark thinks Jesus is, and that sets up a tension between us who are in the know as readers and hearers and everyone else in the story because they struggle a lot with Jesus' identity. It draws us into the story more deeply. It draws us into that question of who Jesus really is and this is precisely Mark's intention. But there is more going on to this particular story. Jesus' baptism is not just something interesting that happened to Jesus. It has a great deal of meaning right here, right now, for people like us. And so I hope that we'll see that more clearly and that we will experience it more fully.
as we talk about it this morning. So here's how Mark starts. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. As introductions go, that one is pretty inauspicious. And I'll get to why I say that it's inauspicious in a minute, but first let me say something that may uh, be important for maybe a few of us who are here this morning. I want to talk for just a second just about the existence of Jesus of Nazareth, him as a person in history. And I want to talk about that because every once in a while, usually around Christmas or Easter, um, the major news outlets and the major news magazines will trot out some academic who's willing to say that Jesus wasn't really a person who lived, that Jesus of Nazareth is really a, a construct made up of a bunch of different bits of this and that by particular groups for whatever purpose they wanted. I'm sure we've all seen something like that at some point in our lives. You know, when you're standing in the checkout at Walgreens, there's this medieval picture of Jesus on the cover and some question about whether he really lived or whether he really did this or that or the other thing. I'm sure that gets a lot of clicks, and I'm sure that sells a lot of magazines, but I want you to know that it is not based on good, rigorous history, and that there is a, a good bit of evidence, quite a bit of evidence, for the existence of Jesus of Nazareth from both Jewish and Greco-Roman sources. In fact, there's more direct evidence from these non-Christian sources that Jesus lived than exists for a lot of other historical figures whose existence we just take for granted. If you want to know more about that, there's a guy, a professor at Purdue, he teaches history, Lawrence Mictic. He's published this article in the Biblical Archaeology Review called, Did Jesus Exist? And it's a really fair and even treatment of that evidence, and you can easily find it if you just Google that title, Did Jesus Exist? in Biblical Archaeology Review. So that's all I'm going to say about that for now. Jesus of Nazareth existed, and like everyone else in antiquity, Mark took it for granted that that was true. Now, was he who he said he was? Was he who Mark said he was? That is a different question altogether, and that's one of the reasons Mark is writing this gospel. So back to Nazareth. It's this tiny town. It's made up of perhaps 500 people in the first century, mostly fishing families and farming families. And Mark makes sure that we know that it is in the northern part of the country. It's in Galilee. And he probably had to do that because if he hadn't have said where Nazareth was, most of the people reading him would have no idea about Nazareth at all or even where it was. It's a tiny, insignificant town. It doesn't rate even a passing mention in the Old Testament. And the northern part of the country, Galilee, had a reputation in Jesus' day for being populated with very simple people who spoke with an accent that made them difficult to understand. I mean, that's the nicest way that I can put it. What people really said about Galilee was often worse. I mean, the sophisticates, the urbanites of the day in Jerusalem and in Judea, they did not have much good to say at all about Galilee. And this is where Jesus comes from. He comes quietly from Nowheresville. So in case you're counting, this is the second person, the second human that gets introduced in Mark's gospel. And it is the second person to clearly not come from a place of power or influence. When Jesus appears on the scene, he appears just like John the Baptist did. 
right? Out in the desert, away from the corridors of power and influence in Jerusalem. He doesn't appear preaching in the temple. He comes quietly to the desert. And church, I want you to know that none of this is a coincidence. And this is how the gospel of Jesus always comes to us. This is how the gospel of Jesus works. This is what it looks like. This is what it feels like. And this is what it tastes like. We'll see it again and again. The good news that Jesus brings deconstructs our ideas about power and influence. It savages our ideas about power and influence. turns them inside out. When Jesus comes with his good news, he says the way up is down now, and the last are first, and it is the poor and the meek who inherit the earth. And Jesus says if you want to save your life, you have to open your hands and lose it. And I I have to be honest and say I don't think we could ever hear this enough. And I think we need to hear it again and again and again because it counters so many things in our lives that we see and experience and breathe in and drink down all of the time without even thinking about it. It stands counter to how our city is run, for instance. I mean, did you read about how the water tax was passed last week. I'm not talking about that there was a water tax passed. There's nothing new about that. I'm talking about how it was passed. The push and the pull and the posturing of our mayor and our aldermen. The gospel of Jesus stands counter to how business is often done in our world. It stands counter to the preening that is so often present in academia. It stands counter to how our relationships are often run. I mean, Jesus is not coming to plow through anybody for his own good. That is not how he comes onto the scene. And if we follow him, and if we order our loves around his loves, then we won't do that either. So if you were here last week, you might remember that we talked about John and his uh, movement being a protest movement. I mean, there he is. He is calling people out. He is calling people away from the temple, away from the priests, away from the persons of influence in Jerusalem. He is calling people out to the banks of a muddy river in the desert to tell them that someone mightier is coming and that if they want to be ready for this mighty one, if they want to be ready for his presence, And they're going to have to reorder everything in their lives through repentance of sins. He's telling them, hey, whatever isn't fitting in your life as individuals, whatever doesn't make sense in our common life for the presence of this mighty one to come, it needs to be done away with or it needs to be set right. And people are coming out in droves to hear John. And they're coming out to repent of their sins. And they're submitting to the sign of that repentance, which is baptism. That's what's happening out there in the wilderness. It is a protest movement against the powers of the day. And knowing that that is true makes it pretty incredible to consider what happens when Jesus shows up on the banks of that river. He was baptized by John in the Jordan. I mean, this is the mighty one that John was talking about. How in the world does he feel that he needs to be baptized? Why in the world would he undergo the sign of baptism for repentance of sins? Why would John ever let such a thing happen? 
I mean, these are, these are good questions. These are, I hope, the questions that we ask when we read stories like this. They just happen to be questions that Mark isn't even remotely interested in answering. He has cut the story down to the essence of it. If you want to, later this afternoon, you can read how Matthew and Luke and John talk about this. Matthew, in particular, gets at some of those questions. But right now, it is just Mark and what Mark wants us to see. And it is unmistakable. First, Jesus joins the protest. It's a completely extracurricular, non-sanctioned, renegade thing that's happening out in the wilderness. And Jesus has just signed on to it. That's going to have ramifications for the rest of the story. Ramifications that affect us even today. And this gets us closer to the heart of the second thing I think Mark wants us to see. And that is that Jesus numbers himself with sinners. He offers no qualifications about it. He shows no hesitations about it. He speaks no parables about it. He just gets in line with all of the rest of the sinners. And he goes under the waters just like everybody else. And I'm pretty sure that this is probably the best thing that people like us are going to hear today. Jesus numbers himself with sinners. He throws his lot in with people like us. From the very start, before he's preached one word, before he's done one miracle, it is his intent to identify with us in some way. And we will see how this way plays out through the rest of the story. In some way, he has bound his destiny to our destiny. And this gets me back to something that we talked about last week. I mean, Mark is crystal clear about who he thinks Jesus is, who he wants us to think Jesus is. He's called this story the good news of Jesus, the King, the Christ, the Son of God. And like I said last week, in this way, he's doing people like us a favor in that he is trying to get at some of the most important questions that human beings ask. I don't care who you are. These are questions that we ask. Like, is this all there is? And is there more to this world than just what I can see and touch and taste? Is there a reality behind the reality? Is there a God? And if there is a God, can I know him? And if I learn about him and know him, what will he be like? And Mark is writing to convince us that we can know God and be known by him. And it is in the person of Jesus. That is at the heart of the gospel that Mark is writing. And so if he is right, if he is right about Jesus then he has just told us something pretty astounding about God. Something that many of us would never expect. Something that is profound beyond our ability to grasp it, but it is true. And that is that God, God himself, gets down in the dirt with people like us. He walks into the desert and makes his way down to the muddy banks of the river, and he goes under that cloudy water. And he does it for us. God does it for us. He binds up our destinies with his own. I'll tell you what, church, if you've ever wondered if you have worth, if you've ever wondered if you have dignity, 
If when your head hits the pillow at night and before you fall asleep, you've ever wondered if you can be forgiven for that thing you hope no one ever finds out about, if you will ever be free of this thing that is strangling you to death, if you have ever wondered if you could be loved, then the Christian faith has a wildly surprising thing to say to you. Yes. The answer is yes. You do have worth. And you do have dignity. And you can be forgiven. And you are the worthy object of divine love. And if you ever doubt that's true, just look again at Jesus on the banks of the Jordan, identifying with people like us, binding our story into his, and doing it for us, for you and for me. You know, Mark may have skipped over Bethlehem and the shepherds and Mary and Joseph and all the angel choirs and all that stuff, but he has not skipped over God with us. And now he gets to the reality behind the reality. He says, Jesus comes up out of the water and he sees the heavens being torn open. Mark uses a pretty violent word to describe what Jesus saw. He doesn't want us to imagine this little door that's popped ajar hanging up in the heavens somewhere. He wants us to imagine a cataclysm. He wants us to imagine and to see a ripping of the veil between the world where we can see things and taste things and feel them and the world where we cannot yet or maybe only infrequently can taste and see and touch things. Lots of writers think that Mark is using this violent image, this violent word, to allude to Isaiah 64. That's where the prophet says, God, you need to rend the heavens, you need to tear them open and come down. And I think they're probably right because that, that passage in Isaiah is a plea for God to come down into the chaos, into the injustice, into the violence of this world, and to set things right, to forgive our sins and to establish justice and peace. I think Mark is telling us, you need to know that the world is open. You need to open that it has been torn. You need to know that the, the veil between our world and the rest of the world, the real reality behind things has been ripped open, and that God has and will continue to act into our world for our good and for his glory. And then Mark tells us that Jesus sees the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove. Mark uses another colorful word there. The descent is like a fluttering or a hovering. And starting with the church fathers, lots and lots of writers through the history of the church have said that Mark uses that word as a way of making us hear it and think of the first lines of Genesis, which were our Old Testament lesson this morning where the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters in the moments before creation began. That's Mark's way of saying that what we're seeing is the beginning of a new creation in which all that was marred and destroyed by the faithlessness of the first Adam will begin to be redeemed by the faithfulness of the second Adam. And then the voice comes from heaven. This is what Jesus hears. You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. You are my son, I love you, and I'm pleased with you. 
I mean, you could think about those words every day for the rest of your life and probably never get to the bottom of them. And it would be a worthy pursuit, by the way. But for now, let me just say two things about these words that Jesus hears as the Spirit descends on him. First, it is the second confirmation of what Mark says at the beginning about Jesus and who he is. It is a confirmation that he is God's Son. As confirmation goes, there's no higher authority than the one who gives it this time. But here's what you need to know. The thread about who Jesus is goes dark now for a long time in the gospel. How is he the Son of God? What does it mean for him to be the Son of God? What does it mean for us that he is the Son of God? That thread goes dark. And those questions are shrouded in secrecy and in mystery. And we'll see it. It's a way of Mark making us hungry to have them answered. But here's the second thing about the words that Jesus heard. If Mark is right, if Mark is right about Jesus, if Mark is right that Jesus has bound our destinies up into his destiny, then those words that Jesus hears don't just have a profound meaning for Jesus. They have a profound meaning for people like us who follow Jesus. If we follow him in repentance and we follow him in faith, if we follow him through his suffering and death and resurrection, if we find ourselves, like the Apostle Paul says so beautifully, if we find ourselves hidden in Christ, then what is true of him is true of us. And that means that if we are in Jesus by faith, God says to us what he says to Jesus at his baptism. Imagine hearing your first name on God's lips. And then imagine him saying to you, you are my child. And I love you. And I'm pleased with you. You are my child. And I love you. And I'm pleased with you. That's the gospel. <laughs> To be a Christian is to hear that and to believe it because it is true. To be a Christian is to begin to imagine all of the profound possibilities that that kind of love, that being loved like that, holds out for people like us. And to be a Christian is to begin to live a life that is animated and energized and driven and upheld by that love for the good of the world, and for the glory of the one who loves us. Let me pray for us. Father, I ask that you would speak these words to us, to all of us who are found in your Son, to every one of us who is your follower, that you would speak these words to us in fresh ways through whatever means you have at your disposal, that, that every one of us in here from the one who feels the farthest away from you to the one who feels the closest to you, that we would hear these words again, you are my child and I love you and I am pleased with you. And that you would completely change us and make us new by those words. And Father, I ask that for those of us who are here this morning who aren't yet followers of your son, that you would draw us in love to him. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.